This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Kevin Wilson's novels live inside me. They get stuck there, and I find myself imagining my way back into their world long after I've put them down. A host of extraordinary characters, mostly young women, call me back to a moment of imagined community with their lives. Lillian, Izzy, Annie, and now Frankie are seekers for a larger purpose in their lives, lives which are too often constrained and limited by their economic and cultural precarity in a world that overlooks them. In Kevin's latest, Now is Not the Time to Panic, he takes as his starting point a phrase created by two lonely teens hidden away together one summer in a small Tennessee town making art. Frankie, living with her single mother and three frighteningly energetic brothers, and Zeke, away from his home in Memphis for a summer when his family seems about to split. Frankie has a moment of inspiration and pens the phrase that will change both of their lives forever. The edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us. That phrase and Zeke's accompanying artwork on a poster that they will copy and put up secretly all over town whips up a storm of discontent and misunderstanding. What begins as a passion project to make something new becomes a manifesto without a fixed meaning. Skaters and gangs, sad militia and overzealous reporters will each grab a hold of the magic they find in those words and pictures. As we track the conflagrations set by their art, now is not the time to panic, asks a different kind of question. 
How can you hold on to a perfect moment in time when life is constantly running away from you, like sand in an hourglass? Frankie and Zeke, for one brief summer, find something like perfection in make the making of art that has a tangible power and meaning in the world. They are, for a time, untouched by the demands of that world, and they show their love for one another not in physicality, but in the power of bringing something new into being, art that they create together, but which lives its own life outside of them. Even when they lose control of the art they created, it marks them and that fleeting moment of youthful passion and vulnerability. Frankie and Zeke will hold that memory in very different ways, marked and scarred by what comes after, but the beauty and ephemerality of their act of creation lives on. As in all of his fiction, now is not the time to panic is a flashlight in a world where the power has gone out, and the hopefulness that comes with that illumination is found in the outsiders, the broken, the weirdos who are themselves so rarely seen by the society around them. Kevin Wilson proves again and again how attention to the smallest of lives and the good those misunderstood people bring into the world is a font of hopefulness that is too seldom tapped. I am grateful for Frankie and Zeke, for I too am a fugitive and the law is skinny with hunger for me. Welcome back to the show, Kevin Wilson. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. It's a thrill to have you here again, and this is such a wonderful novel. The phrase at the center of it, the edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers, we are fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us, has been a part of your life since well before the novel came into focus. Can you tell us how this incredibly evocative phrase became part of your life? Sure. Uh, so the summer after my freshman year of college at Vanderbilt University, uh, I had had a pretty difficult year. I think it was just leaving home, moving out of this kind of rural space into, uh, you know, a, a world that was bigger and a little more difficult for me to understand. I was just kind of out of sorts. And that summer, I had a job working at the medical center and I lived with my cousin, who was about four or five years older than me, and his best friend, Eric. And Eric had uh, gone to NYU film school. He just graduated with an MFA in theater and acting from Alabama. And we lived together that summer and he was incredibly, Eric was just super charismatic. Uh, he made little movies and he just made art feel like it was this thing that, that like we could make, you know, that it wasn't beyond me, which was, uh, you know, something that's kind of lovely to discover and especially have someone about your own age encourage you. And that summer, well, it had been the entire year previous, but uh, in the early days of the internet, there was this like 700 page policy and procedures manual for the medical center that they wanted online. And so I was typing it by hand in HTML uh, in this tiny office and no one knew what I was doing. Uh, I don't think they even knew I was there most of the time. And the policy and procedures manual was crazy boring. And I just decided I would, uh, make up stuff and put it in there. And so I just started writing a bunch of stuff and hiding it in the manual. Nobody ever said anything or noticed. And so I told Eric and I was like, you have a line or anything that you want me to put in there? And I'd shown him some of the ones I was writing, which were kind of weird, like sharpened sticks and, you know, kind of apocalyptic. And he said, yeah, do this. And it was the edges of shanty town filled with gold seekers. 
and his was we are the new fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us and so i put that in the manual and you know it like resonated in my brain and i kind of edited it down to be we are fugitives and then for the rest of my life i've said it in my head all the time like a little mantra or something it's calming i uh, but i don't even think it's that it's just the repetition of it like centers me in some way or reminds me of myself and so it's just been in my head and like a lot of things that are in my head i'm like oh let me get this out of there i'll put it in my writing and i put it in my first novel the family fang it's a line in there but and i was like ah oh, that'll do it um but i've also written about spontaneous human combustion three different times so i kind of know maybe it's not the end of it yet so <laughs> i was like yeah it's not gone i better better try it again so i was like i gotta make it the focal point of the book and not just a line and, and really and truly that's that's how i started the book I, I had very little except the line and then i had to have somebody that made the line and that's kind of how the book shaped up that's so fascinating I've, I've been walking around the house saying the phrase out loud for about a week but i couldn't figure out why it's so sticky I, I find it kind of haunting, um, as many in the town of Coalfield do as well. Do, do you think there's something in the syntax of it? There's a kind of antiquated voice in there, something calling out from the past like a ghost. Or is it simply the enigma of the fugitives and what they may have done? Oh, Chris, man, if I knew, I, I think maybe I wouldn't be saying it all the time. <laughs> I can't figure it out either. For me, the way it works generally is like, the in shantytown is just such an old-fashioned weird word that i think mm -hmm. it makes it sound antiquated but the edge is a shantytown filled with gold seekers is like a setting for me so like when i get to that mid when i get to the middle of the phrase when i hit the end of that first kind of sentence i that that's the kind of grounding i'm like okay here's where i am and then when i say we are fugitives you know i'm moving forward i'm like okay i'm establishing myself and then the last line, you know, the last part of it, the law is skinny with hunger for us is the kind of opening up and freedom of it. You know, there is this, I am this, but I'm not caught, you know, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. allows me to keep living. And so I don't know. It's like, it's like anything, like it's a code that you make up the meaning later. So <laughs> I'm just kind <laughs> of, for me, that's now kind of how the, like the chant works. Hmm. Well, I, I have a feeling it's now stuck in my head, so I don't know whether to thank you for that or to, to damn you, but I... You'll, um, after about 25 years, I, I know what you'll think. <laughs> it would not be great. I'll send you the bill. Um, the, I, I can't believe that, that Frankie wasn't already formed, and it's the line that, that made her, because she's in, indelible for me. But one of the things I love about this book is it's certainly about art, but it's also an homage to, to teen love, or to be more specific, teen outcast love. And Frankie and Zeke are outsiders in their own ways, even within their families. But with each other, they feel seen. There's something profound about that kind of teen love. What do you think it is? And, and does it have something to do with how temporary it is? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to figure this out myself, like why I tend to write about people that are on the margins. And, you know, honestly, I think like part of it is you mentioned something about like, like something that I'm 
I always try to do is I, 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 I my focus is, is incredibly small, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I try to render like very, very uh, singular people in a very, very constrained space and just try to devote all of my attention to that small little space. So, um, and to my mind, like, you know, it's almost impossible to render the whole world, right? I think Stephen Milhauser talks about this, that like, to, to attempt to render the entire world will always end in failure. But if you just, if you just focus on a grain of sand, in the specificity of it, you can evoke all the other grains of sand on that beach and you can evoke the water of the ocean that laps against that beach and you can evoke mm -hmm. all the ships at sea and you can evoke all the land that touches that ocean and in the attempt to be small you you actually can render the whole world and that's always resonant i mean he was like one of the first writers for me that really opened me up and I, i've just always loved that idea so for me like when you start small when I write about this this young woman in this rural town, you're kind of placing them in isolation with your focus. And so once I do that, you know, I'm trying to like render their lives as as closely as I can. And so I'm I think that's why I'm kind of drawn to stories about loners or outcasts or people who feel outside of the norm because it allows me the space to render them. But the other complicating factor is I think everybody <laughs> thinks of themselves as an outsider or a loner or lonely, you know, mm. uh, there are like maybe more traditional versions of that, but there's, there's no person in the world who hasn't felt outside of what seems normal. And so it's not that hard if you focus on the minutia of a single character to find those moments. And it's, it, it, you know, f for you, it's often that grain of sand is often somewhere rural and perhaps outside of the focus of a lot of mainstream culture. And yet you are still able, as you say, to evoke the, the grand ocean and the other parts of the world and all the, the tiny pieces of sand. Is there something especially evocative for you about those smaller towns a little bit outside of the focus of the kind of grander narratives of culture? Yeah, for sure. I've, you know, I've spent almost my entire life in the same county uh, in Tennessee. Uh, and so I'm really drawn to rural spaces. And I think it took me a while to finally like reconcile. Like, I think sometimes people call me a Southern writer and I think I am, but my wife is Southern. She's from Atlanta, but our experiences are vastly different <laughs> because she lived in an urban setting. Her South is way different than mine. And then, you know, I lived the only time I've ever been out of the South. I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I spent tons of time in Maine in New Hampshire. And when I'd go hiking and drive around those, I was like, this feels like the South. Uh, but it wasn't. Oh, it was just so interesting. You know, like the moment I, I saw like small towns with kind of limited sources of like opportunity and information. It's not like that's I'm not romanticizing it. I'm just saying like that feels familiar to me. Um, so I do like writing about rural spaces. And I think things have changed with the Internet, but it's still like to grow up in a rural space is not that you don't have desires and dreams. It's that you understand that like your line to those things is not going to be a straight line. Right. And that mm -hmm. means usually you have to get weird. Like you have to wiggle your way through those impediments to get to the thing that you want. And that generally makes you a little stranger. 
Mm. Yeah, you said you mentioned that the internet has changed things, and one of the things about the novel is it's you know it's a it's a nineteen nineties a late nineteen nineties novel, and the the Coalfield Panic, as it's known, takes place in nineteen ninety six, just at the beginning of the internet age, or at least the popularization of the of the internet. So you're telling a specific kind of end of the century story about how art and ideas were still capable of spreading like wildfire into the imagination of the country. Was it exciting to try and think about that older form of a spreading groupthink in which young people create a fever that spreads in unexpected ways to an entire town and state? And is there something special for you about that moment just on the edge um, before the internet? Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me because that's when I grew up, you know. The, it's <laughs> me like, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't have an email address until college. So, you know, I predate the internet as we know it. And, you know, so that was difficult, you know, to not have access to things. Like I I know people talk about the internet and I, I understand all the inherent problems, but, you know, 15-year-old me sure would have loved to have heard, you know, music. Uh, you know, that I couldn't find anywhere, you know, oh, rather yeah. than like sending $5 in an envelope to some, you know, a punk label that sent me a, a record back, it would have been nice to just go online and find it or to read the books that I wanted to read that weren't at my library. But the other thing is, I think people also kind of overvalue how much I think the internet certainly can make it more possible and maybe more easy for things to go viral or to spread or for panic to kind of increase, but that stuff has always been there. Uh, and when I was writing this book and thinking about like, you know, the satanic panic, which predates the nineties, but also like, just, I mean, frankly, like, I think my mom would go nuts every once in every like couple of months over something on Phil Donahue. Mm. I, you know, I just, <laughs> I just think that the opportunities again, there were impediments for something like the Coalfield panic to spread. Uh, but people were weird enough that just again, it would find its way uh, and, and it would it would move and it would get somewhere, but it might be in a broken down form. Mm. And I don't want to get too huge into this, but like that's just our world now. Like the way things spread back then in the 90s is like you would hear a snippet of something or you'd hear a song, but you couldn't place it or you'd see some scene in a, in a movie on TV at three in the morning and you couldn't find it or know where it came from. So then all you remembered was a single image. And honestly, that feels like internet culture now, which is like cultural units, you know, mimetics and memes. It's this little piece that gets removed from the context and, and spread. So I don't know. It all feels kind of similar to me. Hmm. I, I really like that. That's, that seems right to me, although I, I had not ever thought of those things as, as sharing that commonality of these discrete units that get spread and, and disconnected from their, their context. I was glad uh, that you said something about the satanic panic, because that was definitely on my mind. Um, were there specific things about that um, moment in the 80s and 90s where there was all this fear about Satan worshiping and sac human sacrifice that that sort of you drew into the Coldfield Panic? Yeah, but it, yeah, I did. I mean, for sure. It was just, again, that sense of like, what are our children doing? What do they have access to? And honestly, like, uh, even though the internet may have make it easier to find stuff, as a kid, like, again, I was, my parents said, no, I was just sending money 
and getting zines and magazines and records back. And I didn't even know what the heck was going to be in them. Uh, and also, I had no real way to trace the source of it or get more of it. So I kind of get like people were worried about like how things were like entering into the minds of children and and just like any kind of human nature, people went nuts and couldn't <laughs> figure it out and made up these incredibly insane stories that that made no sense. That all tracks for me. Mm. Um, you know, but and again, like, I think there were levels to it. And I think, but, you know, I grew up in a county that didn't have MTV until after I left for college. Like, they, they wouldn't let us have MTV because they were afraid of what it would do to our brains. So... I don't if know. If only that they knew what was caution. coming. What's that? If only they knew what was coming. That I know. Would have been like MTV's fine. Don't worry. Yeah, about it. It, that's the <laughs> least of your problems, dude. But, um, but yeah. So I think again, it's that sense of like there's an opening up in that time period, especially in rural spaces. Like it's hard to keep track or to to know where the source of things are, and that gets people a little jumpy, and it makes things spread. And I don't think Frankie and Zeke are like thinking about that. They just wanted to be cool and make something. But I can see how, you know, it latches on. Mm -hmm. You have so many wonderful descriptions of what art is and does in this novel. But one of my favorites is when Frankie and Zeke are in Memphis and they leave some posters. And I'm quoting you here. Quote, we left them everywhere, little landmines that wouldn't hurt anyone. Just enough of a de detonation to please us. There is a contained violence in this description, but it's couched in a teenage naivete that no one will get hurt. This is a story about what happens when those explosions do hurt and when there are profound consequences to what art puts into the world. Do you think that good art always comes with this possibility of exploding? Or is there something particular about this experiment and the teens who become obsessed with it? Oh, that's a great question, Chris. I, I think anything that comes from inside of a person, right? Like in, any creative act is formed in, in, in some sense of a constrained space or some kind of privacy, right? Like you write something, you, you make a song, you paint a picture, and, and really your source material is yourself and whatever you hold inside of yourself. And that's great. You get the generation of that, that creative enterprise but really and truly, like, after that, any art that you put out into the world, the moment it touches the open air, you, you really cannot control it. I mean, you mm -hmm. can have anticipations and you can be responsible, but, like, there's no real way to know how another person will internalize that piece of art. So to my mind, yeah, I think everything that is made in the world that then touches the open air has the possibility to explode. That's just... That's just the danger of, of, of being alive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so, and you said you can respond to it. Does that does that expand out to, in some way, having responsibility for it? So that if something you know you write or create does something unanticipated, it lives its own life, and 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 something you know powerfully wrong happens. Does one have responsibility for that, or does it? It simply is not your creation. It's Frankenstein's monster, and it and it lives on on its own after that. Yeah, that's a, you know, again, a great question. And I mean, I feel like the answer is just like somewhere in the middle of two poles, which is that the artist has no responsibility or that the artist bears the responsibility of their creation. (laughs) I think there's something in the middle. I think it was, who was it that's, you know, the avant-garde need not be moral, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like whatever, you know, if you're, if you're on the edge of, of creation and making these new things, you, you can't worry about morality or how it will be received but then, you know, in my head, I'm always like, yeah, but like, there can still be space for the consideration of what you're putting out and who you're talking <laughs> to. So I don't know. I, I can't quite reconcile all that stuff. So Frankie's mom has quite a particular, I guess, thesis on how art should be interpreted and loved. And she tells Frankie, if you love something, you can't think too much about what went into making it or the circumstances around it. You just have to, I don't know, love the thing as it is. And then it's just for you. Right. And, and, and Frankie, I think pretty much rejects this. So where do you fall in the question of needing to understand the circumstances of the production of art? And in this case, you know, Frankie's mom was talking about a Jackson Brown song um, that has a, a kind of a creepy undertone. Yeah. Yeah. I I was happy I could finally write about Jackson Brown uh, in in a novel. (laughs) Songs are so weird. You've been holding back. So catchy and yet so weird. Yeah. Again, like I think this, this gets to kind of the two elements of like artistic creation for me is, and my primary goal with making stuff is um, the pleasure I derive from making it. Like having an idea trying to utilize what little amount of craft and ability that I have to shape it into something that to my mind works. And, you know, honestly, that's really the thing I care about the most and whatever happens after that, like if somebody reads it or if the book gets published or if it sells copies, I certainly want all that stuff to happen, but I also just can't control that in the same way that I can control the making of it. So, so much of my life is the consideration of the making. And so some of that is the consideration of the audience and trying to anticipate. But like, for me, that all happens before. And in terms of like responsibility and everything that comes after, I certainly am happy to take responsibility for the stuff that I make. But I also just feel like it's almost completely out of my control at a certain point. You know, I think with the the two characters, Frankie and Zeke, I think Zeke feels intense guilt for what he's made. 
you know, what it's wrought. And I think Frankie understands and recognizes that that's happened, but it doesn't affect her in the same way because she made the thing that she wanted to make and that was more important. And so I think they're, they're existing on different poles of like how you think about art and, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle or, or, or skewing more towards Frankie. For Frankie and Zeke, it is making art rather than making out that's the most <laughs> intimate thing in their relationship. It's so intimate, in fact, that they spill their own blood on the original poster they make together. They occasionally kiss, but otherwise it's art that bonds them. And the posters will become bigger than the artists and more problematic. But in the early days of spreading them around the town, there is an intimacy greater than anything physical between the two. What drew you to this idea of art as, as intimacy and, and specifically for young people? Well, I mean, I think it's hard to admit, but I think what drew me to this is just my own intense prudishness and innocence <laughs> as a child going up into even college and adulthood. I still feel very childlike in a lot of ways. And so um, I also am just, I'm always interested in, in books that, that portray like the full range of adolescence, which is like a lot of adolescent stories are about like desire and burgeoning desire and um, uh of, of hoping to move into those like areas of adulthood. But I also love books that really explore the idea of like adolescence as a kind of terror mm. of, of not knowing because everything's so uncertain and new that it becomes almost horrific. And so, you know, to avoid those kind of traditional forms of intimacy, like you don't want to kiss somebody, like you don't want to take your clothes off. You don't want to, like even be seen uh, with another person, like holding their hand, like that all feels very strange. What tends to happen, I think, is that people throw themselves, you know, adolescents throw themselves into these other obsessions and then they share those obsessions and it becomes more weirdly intimate and strange than if they had just had sex, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of what I'm interested in, that in the avoidance of growing up or in the avoidance of even labeling anything, because even at, you know, in adolescence, you're not even a hundred percent sure of your sexuality. You're not assured of like what you even want. Um, so what do you do if you don't know? Well, you take all those obsessions and you just try to do anything else with them so that you don't have to decide yet. And then you get weirdness and then mm. that weirdness lives with you forever. Right. Yeah, and it's and, and I think you're so right that literature in particular misses this these big other passionate sides of of, of that moment in of youthfulness and the ways in which the kind of careening train towards a certain kind of physicality and desire is never treated one with its complications of, uh, of fearfulness, or at, or at least not often treated with that. But also this idea that, you know, that young people are full human beings with, with more than one interest <laughs> and that, you know, the desire to create things and to, you know, be, be weird and, and make something cool is as powerful for, for those young people often as, as those other things that get a lot more attention. Especially when, again, I don't want to keep harping on rurality because I think obviously like people in the city, have these same concerns, but also like when you live in such a fixed 
space where so many people are known to you and you are known to so many other people, like there's a safety in making art, uh, like a private thing that doesn't immediately categorize you or shape you in the eyes of that rural space. Hmm. So like that, that, you know, there's a kind of freedom you can get in the making of art or even just in your obsessions that you can't have in, in reality. Hmm. I, I love that. When other people in the town and surrounding areas start to make their own copies and new versions of Frankie and Zeke's original poster, you bridge one of the most interesting questions in art. What is the value of the copy versus the original? When in Whether in the form of plagiarism or something more subtle like fan fiction, copies are powerful in their own right. How do you understand the value of copies and fabrications of artworks? Oh, that's really cool. And um, I mean, God, you could do three hours just on this, right? Like it's, it's so true. complicated and complex. And I understand that like there's something about like owning the intellectual property, which I don't know. I find that so strange. But um, to my mind, it's just almost impossible to to prevent this, right? That That so much of art is the way uh, an original thing resonates in the mind of someone else and whether by choice or by not, uh, there's gonna be similarities. But what you're talking about, like where these characters are like making posters that are versions of Frankie and Zeke's poster, I think what Frankie would say is, oh, they don't, they don't have the same value, you know? Mm -hmm. And also mm -hmm. like even the posters that they themselves make, the copy is not as important as the original one that has their actual blood on it. So mm -hmm. I think Fr Frankie in some ways is like, no, it's, it's the object that holds the meaning because it holds the memory of the actual event. But I, I don't know that I fully believe that. Like, I think the copy can be just as powerful. I think it can do some things that the original can't. And you know, again, there are going to be people who see that weird copy poster and not know the original source. And I don't know. I don't know whose responsibility that is. I, I think this also just comes from like pretty much all I listen to is rap. And, you know, it, it, the interpolations and the sampling of existing material oh, yeah, in yeah. new and interesting ways, I, I don't want to lose that in the same way that I recognize that people should get paid for what they want, uh, you know, for what they make. I have trouble um, fully accepting that. Yeah, and it's and at the same time, I imagine you you like me feel some sadness when you know someone will listen to a song that samples something from some from somewhere else or is a uh, a new version of an original and they won't know the original and you and you sort of wish them the power of feeling that original get drawn into this new thing, um, and it doesn't mean they can't appreciate the song on its own, but, but you want something of the knowledge of that original sometimes, I think. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, obviously like in, in, in a perfect world, you hear the copy and it sends you into the past to find the original mm -hmm. and then you can exist with both of them. And, and actually truly like when I hear a sample in a rap song and I can't place it immediately and it takes me a while to be like, Oh, that violin is from this that moment of resonance of connection is is almost more important than the song at that point like i love mm. that moment of of seeing the connection um so uh, you know i i do think 
there's a resonance that you gain uh, as you as these things are are in conversation with each other. Yeah, I agree. You've talked a little bit about your interest in outsiders, but I, I personally think think of you as the crown prince of wounded characters who are allowed to be fully human, even as they are wounded. There are lots of broken people in your novels, and this one is no exception, but broken for you doesn't mean inhuman or bad or without possibility. In fact, the broken ones are the people who seem to understand more fully what it means to be human. And in my reading, you hold on to that idea of vulnerability to a world that might destroy you as perhaps the greatest human trait. Does this match at all with how you understand your work? Oh, yeah. I, I'm, that's really lovely, Chris. And I mean, yeah, I think that's that's what my work is. And I think I you know, I have models for that, um, of the writers that really meant something to me, um, uh, in that I am drawn to what some people would call freakishness. Um, and to me, that freakishness is not, uh, inhuman in any way, shape or form. It's, it's evidence of like how difficult it is to be a human and exist in the world. Uh, you know, and in fact, mm -hmm. I, I think those traits aren't necessarily the thing that pushes you outside of the world. It's the thing that ties you to it. And I know I've talked about this a lot, but I think people tend to uh, uh, overestimate uh, children's ability to like um, process things and withstand them and move on uh, just because they like don't die. Uh, mm. And so to my mind, like, childhood adolescence for you know and i'm not saying it's all bad because i think a lot of it is incredible and thrilling but adolescence and childhood is in so many ways like internalizing weird things that you can't explain because you are living with a language the language of adulthood that you don't fully grasp so you can't fully understand like what is bad or good or what hurts and what doesn't and so all you can do is really just pull it inside of you and keep moving and sometimes it's only later that you kind of fully realize like the context. And so kind of every person that like makes it through the world is gonna bear some kind of mutation or freakishness, whether it's external or internal. And to my mind, like those are the like the ways that we made it through to, to stay alive. So I like writing about those people that are aware of that in some ways, um, that aren't afraid of it and who acknowledge it and who are like, you know, there's great pain in all love. And so, but it's worth it. I think that's Lewis Norton, right? Lewis Norton says, there is great pain in all love, but we do not care. It is worth it. Hmm. And, and I've kind of always- I haven't heard that before. I've always loved that. I think it's from Music of the Swamp or something like that, but I've always loved that line. It's always resonated with me, uh, the, the acceptance of, of pain. Hmm. It's an unlikely turn of events that Hobart, the somewhat dopey boyfriend of Frankie's mother, who ends up offering a different kind of mantra to Frankie, an ode to being okay with feeling different or, or in friction with the world. He says, Frankie, I think you are really smart and I think you'll do fine, but I also think it's not so bad if you never quite feel right in this world. It's still worth hanging around. You just have to look harder to find things you love. This is such an important and not often heard of way, way of understanding discomfort and difference. Do you feel like not enough people are hearing this message? Well, I mean, I think, 
I think people will probably hear it, but it's also like not super comforting, you know? Um, <laughs> so much of narrative is if you can survive mm -hmm. it and you get through it, there is a reward that awaits you, right? Mm. Um, that you may feel alone, but eventually you'll meet that person or you'll find that family. And uh, God, who doesn't want that? Uh, I do. I, I wanted it. But I also just think... Um, there's something to be said that even if those kind of traditional things don't happen, um, it, it's still worthwhile. There's still something uh, worthy of being in this world. Uh, and it just means you have to, you have to find those, those kind of things that sustain you. But yeah, it's not lovely. It's not wonderful. Um, but there are so many times when I think of my own children, my boys who are 14 and 10 now, and there's, it would be so depressing to say this to them and it would be kind of cruel, but there's so many times where I want to say like, you might not find somebody or you might not find a person in the way that you had hoped. And yet there's still so much in this world that can sustain you and make you happy. And there are relationships that you can have beyond those kind of traditional things that we think of as our kind of reward. Uh, but God, who would want to tell that to a kid? I think Hobart only tells it to Frankie because he's worried she's going to like harm herself, you know? Mm. Uh, I think that's when you step in. And yet she, at that moment, I think really loves him for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she absolutely does. Yeah. There's there's a tinge of cruelty to it, but also a, a, a kind of blessing, I think. You've got to find that sweet spot in terms of timing when to tell somebody that. <laughs> Um, when you were last on the show, you recommended two authors who fast became two of my favorite living writers, Katie Kitamura and Marcy Dermansky. I'm hoping you'll have some new extraordinary recommendations for me and my listeners. What do you think we should read next? Oh, man. So the book I'm just kind of really going crazy about right now is uh, Elizabeth Tan, and it's called Rubik came out a few years ago uh, and Tan is a Australian writer and honestly like uh, the only reason that I read it a couple maybe like a year and a half ago was because I, I teach a class on uh, called forms of fiction and and I was teaching it on linked story collections and so you know each time I try to find some new books you know like I'm always teaching Goon Squad or like Brian Washington's lot and mm. so you want to find other things and uh, I had heard about it in, in it's this uh, link collection about a woman, Elena Rubik, who in the very first story dies, is hit by a car and dies. And then every other story after that is linked in some ways to the fallout, the residuals of Rubik's identity as it disperses. So like, for instance, she writes fan fiction and her username Rubik3 on this fan fiction site called Luxury Replicants, you know, is still there. Uh, and people wonder why the new chapter hasn't been written. And then, you know, all these different ways in which, again, thinking about mimetic culture, like these units of ourselves, like keep going even after. Hmm. It's just like this, it's just an incredibly beautiful book um, that's also utterly confounding, like very strange. Hmm. It reminds me of Inception or The Matrix, and it, it talks about both of those movies. But one thing, and the reason I don't want to harp on it too much, but one a student in my my class this semester passed away uh, suddenly without warning, uh, and there you know when there's only 
15 of you in a class, you, you, that, that, that absence is pretty huge. Mm -hmm. And, and then we were just about to start this book that's about death and grief. And I just thought, oh shit, what are we, we going to do this? And I talked to the class and they wanted to. And, and I, I remember in the very first class, there's a section of it where uh, it talks about the way in which people stay alive, even if it's in the memory of other people or inside other people. And it was um, this line that said, you know, a, a body persisting, a body persisting in other bodies. And I just almost lost it in class. You know, I was just like, okay, uh, this is going to help me get through it. And even without that experience, it's just such an extraordinary book that I, I just don't hear, you know, people talk about, um, but it's incredible. Uh, and then the other last book I'd probably recommend just because it's a, I, I tend to like go backwards once I find something I like to try to see what else there is. And one of my favorite books of all time is Rachel Ingalls, Mrs. Caliban, which is about a woman who falls in love with like a fish man. Uh, and so then I read like the Pisces, which is about a woman falling in love with a merman. And then I was like looking and someone was like, yeah, there's this, I can't remember a Canadian writer, but the novel's called Bear. And it's about a woman who goes to Nova Scotia and falls in love with a bear. And I was like, all right. So there's just like a, this is a pretty populated territory that I didn't know about of people falling in love with like animal creatures. But from that, I started to look at more Canadian writers that I don't know anything about. And it led me to a writer named Gwendolyn McEwen, who is mostly known as a poet, but she wrote this novel. I think she wrote it when she was 18. It was like published when she was 22 called Julian the Magician. And again, just such an odd, beautiful, weird book. It honestly reminds me a lot of like, if Cormac McCarthy was a little more uh, mystical, hmm. you know? Oh, wow. Um, it's very short. It's kind of strange. Everything, there's like a line on every page that is just like, again, detonates in an interesting way. Hmm. Um, and it's very much about like the sway that you can hold over a person uh, if they think you're magic, like that you can create narrative or you can make them understand things in ways that they wouldn't. Uh, through the use of like art or craft. It's just a cool book that, again, I tried to think of two books for the podcast that like maybe people hadn't read and also it might be hard to find. I mean, I haven't heard of either of these and they sound incredible. I, I too lost a, a student mid-semester um, a while back and that experience of the sort of the empty chair and, and not quite knowing how to deal with the fact that there is a presence, there's a presence in the absence. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm so called to this Elizabeth Tan um, novel and and the Julian the magician. I mean, it just sounds it sounds incredible. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I hope you like them. Yeah, and I know that uh, listeners are always looking for something overlooked or something that they can kind of dig for and and find new new excitements. So I'm I'm thankful for these, and and I am thankful for this novel. Now is not the time to panic. I just think is is yet again a, a truly wonderful novel of yours and it was really a pleasure to get to talk to you again about it kevin oh it's such a gift i really appreciate it chris thank you thank you
Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks as ever to Kevin Wilson for writing the novels that make it easier to be human. It was such an honor to have him back on the show to discuss Now is Not the Time to Panic. You'll find links to purchase that novel and all Kevin's recommendations at burnedbybooks.com. There you'll also find all of our previous episodes. Coming up next is my interview with Lynn Steger-Strong. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. (laughs) 